Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Dave Ansell, and with Ben Valsler. Ben, what have you seen in the science news this week? Well, this week I've seen research that shows that general health checks are generally unhelpful. This is a systematic review of research into general health checks, and it shows that although they increase the number of diagnoses, they do not, in fact, reduce the number of deaths from cardiovascular or cancer diseases. Now, routine health checks, these are uh, testing healthy people for indicators of a range of conditions. They are common elements of healthcare in certain countries. And the idea is that by checking regularly for risk factors such as high blood pressure or high cholesterol, we should be able to reduce morbidity, we should be able to prolong people's lives. Now, that seems a very worthwhile aim, I'm sure you'll agree. And uh, intuitively, it feels like health checks should be a good thing. Yeah, you'd have thought that if you find a problem, you ought to be able to do something to fix it. And therefore you'd think that as soon as you can diagnose something, you're going to improve lives. That's very true. But as we discussed with regards to breast cancer screening a few weeks ago, there is a risk of what's called overdiagnosis, And that is finding evidence of a condition that would never have actually become a problem and therefore potentially recommending unnecessary, possibly invasive treatment for it. And little research has actually been done to see if health checks actually achieve the aims that they set out. So now a team at the Nordic Cochrane Centre in Copenhagen, led by Dr Lassie Krogsball, combined data from 14 separate studies into a huge meta-analysis to examine the pros and cons of health checks. And they published their results in the British Medical Journal, and they looked at mortality, morbidity, the number of diagnoses, number of hospital admissions, referrals to specialists, and quite a wide range of other factors that included things like general health, including self-reported health, and how much people worried about their health, how often they were absent from work. And they used all of these to compare screened populations with populations that received no health checks. And they used studies that had between 4 and 22 years of follow-up. They did find that the results did vary between the studies, but they found no evidence in the health-checked group for a reduction of either total deaths or deaths through cardiovascular disease or cancer. They did, of course, find evidence of an increase in diagnosis, but because this didn't lead to a change in mortality, we're sort of forced to assume that some of these are, in fact, the over-diagnoses that, that we didn't need to find in the first place. So what does that then say for general health checks? Well, the authors argue that they appeal to people who perhaps need them less anyway. So if you're offered one, if you're the sort of person who's health conscious, you're more likely to say yes. And they point out as well that doctors are already very good at screening patients where they think it's needed. So it could well be that without the health checks, they're spotting these things regardless. And so they conclude that health checks do not work as intended. And also in the BMJ, a related editorial piece, Domhnall Macaulay suggests that policy should be based on evidence of well-being rather than on well-meant good intentions. So it certainly gives us something to think about. Is the problem that the interventions aren't working or that just they're not 
doing the right tests to find anything which you wouldn't have picked up by just feeling ill and going to the doctor? Well, at this scale, it's really hard to tease out an individual problem. And they do suggest that we now need to look at individual screening programmes to work out what, what might be going on. But I think really it's just showing that this broad sweep approach of checking over healthy people isn't doing what we want it to do in an individual basis it may well find something and save lives there's no doubt about that but at the same time there will be enough people where it's finding something that would never have had an effect that that probably balances out fair enough now on a slightly different subject norwegian scientists are looking at turning fish farm waste into cash intensive salmon and trout farms have revolutionized the supply of just certainly salmon uh, making it accessible to far more people than ever before. I know I couldn't have afforded it beforehand. They do have some serious problems. Many of these are caused by the prodigious amounts of food the salmon are eating. This contains a large amount of nutrients, both in the form of energy and in the form of nitrogen and phosphorus, which can act as fertilisers. Some of these end up making up the salmon, but most are either missed by the salmon and pass straight through, or they pass straight through the salmon, and these can then cause algal blooms and seriously alter the balance of the ecosystem. Kaijel Raitan from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology is working on the old adage, where there's muck, there's brass, and essentially considering these inputs as a resource rather than a problem. Only about 30% of the fish food is used by the salmon and the rest is just kind of released into the water. So the trick is to find something which will eat this food and turn it into something useful. Filter feeders are nature's answer to this. And so if you surround fish farms with mussel beds, you could transform all this excess food into mussels, which people can then go and eat on in their dinners. And he's found that from all the waste fish farm uh, in Norway, it increases the rate of growth of mussels and it could produce fifteen to 20,000 extra tonnes of mussels which has got to be tasty. This still leaves the nitrogen and phosphorus fertilisers, um, which are coming out the back of the salmon, and the mussels won't do a lot to it. They'll eat it a bit, but they won't actually deal with it. These are good for fertilising plant growth, so you want to find some plants to grow with it. And small algae cause great problems. They choke off the whole ecosystem. But if you use large algae like seaweed, such as kelp, they can clean the water, absorb its nitrogen and phosphorus, and also they can be collected as biofuel. And just in Norway, they rec- he reckons the potential to grow 0.6 to 1.7 million tonnes of kelp, which you can then rot down and produce methane and produce electricity. So he's estimating that based on the amount of nutrient we're already putting in. That's not a, a best-case scenario. That's a current scenario. That's essentially just taking what you're throwing in the water into the fish farms and attempting to do something useful with it rather than just letting it cause pollution. And I really like this kind of approach because it's kind of taking the problem and turning it into an opportunity in a really elegant way. I guess the only problem would be that you're creating an artificial ecosystem, aren't you? And it may be that although you're obviously adding the nutrient in the first place and then getting something else to mop it up, it could be that in nature it would have been mopped up by five, ten different systems. And so by doing this, we're sort of creating a monoculture of, of kelp around our farms. I mean, I guess it really depends on whether the natural solution to the problem is going to be more or less interesting to the artificial kelp-based solution if the, if the nature just can't cope and it's just going to cause a kind of polluted desert around the place. Whereas instead you can have a load of um, kelp farms, lots of fish in them. That's probably an improvement. And I assume that over time, of course, these things will settle in and become more like a natural ecosystem and support a greater biodiversity anyway. And also they'll probably reduce the fishermen won't be allowed in the kelp farms because they'll um, trawl up all the kelp. So you'll have little, essentially, uh, um, automatic marine reserves around your kelp farms. 
Excellent. If you'd like to find out more about marine protected reserves, well, actually, that's what we're talking about next week on The Naked Scientist. Helen Scales will be here with Kat Arney talking about how we can protect our marine environments. But back to the news. Just as you can see white light and you can hear white noise, it seems that we are also susceptible to a white smell, or olfactory white, as it's also been called. Now, white isn't a distinct frequency of light. Rather, it's the way that we perceive light that is made up of a number of different wavelengths. So two different mixtures, even if they don't contain any of the same wavelengths of light, will still appear white to us as long as they contain enough different frequencies from a wide enough range. Similarly, white noise contains a very wide range of different wavelengths of sound, and it will sound like white noise, that sort of hiss, that broad, almost waterfally hiss, as long as all of those frequencies are of equal intensity across the what's called a stimulus space. Now, the concept of whiteness does seem to extend from having this equal intensity, this flat response, across a very broad range of frequencies. Now, according to research published in the journal PNAS, it does seem that the same is true for smells. So Talia Weiss from the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel and her colleagues collected 86 molecules that should span the full olfactory range and they diluted them so that they each had the same intensity. They then made a range of different mixtures, some that spanned the full range, others that were a bit more sort of clustered, and they asked volunteers to describe the smell of this mixture. And they discovered that the more components two mixtures have, the more similar they are to smell, even if the two mixtures actually have no shared components at all. And when the mixtures contained 30 components or more, they actually started to smell alike. And this, they think, is the olfactory equivalent of white noise. And the authors suggest that this is related to the way that human olfaction works. It's thought of as what's called a synthetic sense rather than an analytical sense. So in other words, it it considers the combination of stimuli together rather than analysing each one individually. And this can actually be seen in the pattern of brain activity that you get from it. So the activity for a mixed smell is not simply the combination of all the individual activities for all the individual components. And furthermore, it's quite unlikely that we're ever going to encounter olfactory white out in the wild. The smell of a rose, for example, is made up of lots and lots of different components. But there's one, phenylethyl alcohol, which is far more intense than the others. And so you don't get that flat response. You don't get olfactory white. Coffee and wine are other good examples. They still have a range of components, but they lack that uniformity that gives us the white smell. Now, the concepts of white noise and white light have actually been of huge benefit to understanding the neurobiology of both hearing and vision. And so the authors of this paper now argue that white smell may open doors and do the same thing for understanding olfaction. It's quite interesting. Um, I know quite a lot of people are in some way kind of smell blind. Not everyone has the same set of smell sensors in the same way some people don't have all of the colour sensors uh, colour blind. So I wonder whether that will affect how they compare to smells. It may well do because it may affect your own sensory space. It may affect the range over which you can smell things. So it could be that a smell that for one person seems to be biased in one direction, as it were, for you might appear to be white because it actually spans 
spans the full range. Or it might be that you can't pick out that one key intense smell. And so lots of things will smell white to you because of the lack of intensity. So that's exactly the sort of thing that we'll be able to do now that we understand this white smell. So what does the smell actually smell like? Well, you probably won't be surprised to hear that it was described as being very neutral. So not pleasant, not unpleasant, just a very sort of plain smell. And that, again, sort of fits with white light and white noise. It's neither one thing nor the other. So it doesn't really smell of anything, but you can smell it. Exactly, yes. And you can, once you teach people that that is a certain smell, so if you give it a name, then they can still identify that smell elsewhere, even though it's actually a completely different smell. It just is made up of enough components to be this white olfactory smell. Fascinating. Now, scientists have managed to make steam directly from ice water using the power of the sun. Now, steam is useful for a huge number of purposes, ranging from running steam engines to sterilising medical instruments, but producing it uses an immense amount of energy, particularly if you only want a small amount of steam, as most of the energy you're using goes into heating up the water before it becomes steam, because you've got to get it to 100 degrees centigrade before it will boil. Now, Naomi Hallas and colleagues have been improving the efficiency of this process using a principle first used by Stevenson in his rocket steam engine. Stevenson did it by sending the gases from his fire through small pipes, increasing the surface area of the boiler so it boiled more steam more quickly. Naomi has taken this to the extreme by spreading metallic nanoparticles about a twenty-thousandth of a millimetre across throughout the water. These have an immense surface area and also absorb light very effectively. So if you focus sunlight onto the water, the energy is absorbed by the particles and transferred into the water almost instantaneously. This means that about 24% of the energy um, from the sunlight goes directly to producing steam without optimising the process at all. They're just kind of throwing them in and this is what happened. This means that they can even produce steam directly from water with ice in it without melting the ice first. Now, we've known for a long time that the surface area to volume ratio is very important for the rate at which chemical reactions will actually take place. So why have we only just discovered this now? Presumably... We've been sort of aware that it could happen since the advent of nanotechnology at all. Well, I guess this is using the sunlight um, as a sort of eco-friendly energy source. And thinking about that, all of a sudden you realise that you can put these little tiny particles in water, they'll absorb heat very, very effectively. And in somewhere like the third world, you could then produce steam to sterilise your instruments very, very quickly, very, very easily, as long as the sun's out. And the nanoparticles get left behind in the water. Presumably, if we were, let's say, using this to distill water to make it drinkable, you wouldn't get the nanoparticles into your drinking water. Hopefully not, no. Um, I imagine with all of these things, a few would come across. But as long as you don't use anything particularly poisonous, that wouldn't be the end of the world either. But essentially, they shouldn't boil off because they won't form a gas. So it will be pretty much just water vapour going across and producing your steam. And is it just water that we're talking about? Or could we use this with other chemicals where we need to separate out one component from another? Well, they've been doing something very similar with alcohol, because essentially as long as you can disperse these particles throughout the liquid, you can do the same thing. And it actually produced a much higher efficiency of getting alcohol vapour out when you're distilling alcohol um, from a base medium than it would do just heating the stuff up. You get less water travelling across. So it's actually a better way of um, distilling than normal. 
And also in the news this week, researchers at the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine have devised a new way to print out replacement cartilage in three dimensions, and they've demonstrated that it works in a real animal. To find out more, we are joined by Dr Anthony Atala, who is the director of the Wake Forest Institute. Anthony, thank you ever so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So why do we need to be thinking about printing artificial cartilage? Well, you know, we've actually been working on creating cartilage for quite a number of years. There's a major need for cartilage, of course, for patients who suffer from conditions such as knee problems or problems with their joints. So having available source of cartilage would be a good thing uh, for patients in the future. What do we do at the moment when we need to make artificial cartilage or when we need cartilage for a patient? What are our options? Well, there are not many options right now in terms of actually putting cartilage in place. You know, once the cartilage wears out, it's very hard to actually put anything in there that would do a good job. So, you know, surgery is done, but really there's nothing better than real cartilage. Of course, for example, if you have an accident where you have a a hip uh, fracture, you know, you're, you're putting in metal pieces in place instead of putting a real what we call elastic cartilage in place. So what's been the basis of your work? What have you been doing? We basically have been uh, uh, focusing on creating tissues and organs using the patient's own cells. The concept is actually quite simple. We take a very small piece of tissue from the patient, less than half the size of a postage stamp, and we then are able to expand those cells outside the body and we then can start creating new cartilage tissue that could be implanted into patients in the future. And this tissue that you're, you're growing outside the body, does it have all of the right properties? Well, that is one of the, the things that we're working on, is to make sure that they have the right properties. And that is where the, the printing comes in, because you can actually lay down cells exactly where they need to be, in a predisposed manner where you can actually program uh, a printer to do so. Now, we've been hearing a lot about 3D printing recently. It does seem to be the future, but 3D printing of living tissue seems quite remarkable. Does it work in the same way whereby you have a, a sort of inkjet head full of a cell culture and you just literally lay down the cells where you want them? That's exactly right. If you can picture your typical desktop inkjet printer, it really is utilizing very similar technology, but instead of using ink, we're using cells. You have a printer that goes back and forth, and what we do is we, we modified printer so that they would print one layer at a time. So instead of having a sheet of paper coming through one at a time, imagine printing on the same sheet of paper over and over again and just building up over the same area until you make the three-dimensional tissue that you need. And do you need a, a scaffold on which these cells can grow, or, or can you literally just print them into three dimensions and they'll hold their shape? No, you do need a scaffold, actually. That's a good question. Uh, and we use different materials as scaffolds. We use gels that look like gelatin, if you will. Then they will hold the cells together in their shape, and these gels can then harden to different consistencies as needed. And then we can also use fibers to print. And, uh, in fact, we have been able to use a combination of both gels and fibers for our printing technology. So when you've done this, how well did the cells survive and and how well did they actually work when you did the mechanical tests that imitate what a, a real bit of cartilage is likely to go through? 
Yeah, the, the cells survive nicely. In fact, what we do is we actually are using the same technology that uh, you are familiar with with an inkjet printer. What happens is you have little air bubbles that get formed inside the cartridge. You have little air bubbles that get formed, and the cells get incorporated within those bubbles, and then are they're basically then released uh, without heat affecting the cells. So the cells come down through the inkjet printer, through the printhead, uh, without being damaged. And then we're able to lay them down one layer at a time until they're able to form what they need to in terms of creating tissue with the uh, properties which are very similar to those in patients. And do we think that in the future this is a likelihood that we'll be able to just scan a knee, for example, and say, well, we need this exact 3D structure of cartilage, let's print one out and then surgically pop it in? Yes, that's in fact uh, the direction that we're headed. We are actually building printers that have scanners in them. So what you do is if you have the injured area, you actually scan the area. And with the same piece of machinery, we will then to go back and lay down the cells where they're needed in their correct three-dimensional uh, three-dimensional structure. Fantastic. Well, that does certainly sound like surgery of the future. Thank you very much, Anthony. That's Dr. Anthony Atala from the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine. You can find the paper that we were just talking about in the journal Bioinformatics, or as always, you can find more of all of our news on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.